Wildish is a story about the humans tangled in the world of wild horse management. Activists aching for the animals to be wild. Those who see them as invasive and the people with the Bureau of Land Management faced with balancing the horse as a relic of Wild West heritage along with its impact on the landscape. From High Country News in collaboration with Alan Warda's Media, I'm Anna Coburn and this is Wildish. I think the biggest issue I see is the wild horse and burrow issue. Penley acknowledges adoptions will not single-handedly solve the problem. Uh, we have 88,000 wild horses and burrows on our western federal lands. We've increased our adoption program uh, to get people to adopt these wild animals. That's not going to solve the problem. And it's a tens of millions of dollars problem, but the more important thing for me is the the existential threat to the quality of those lands. A group of people from Utah, California, Arizona, New York, and other states rallied here this morning in an effort to send a message to members of the BLM office about their concerns. There are now 50,000 Mustangs and holding pens available for adoption, but the number of people taking one home has hit an all-time low in recent years. A fight over horses pitting neighbor against neighbor in the small community of Heber. Dozens of horses found shot to death in the last three years. If there are more horses than the public land can handle, adopt them out or kill them. When you have an excess of animals, not humans, animals, above and beyond your capability to care for them, what you have to do is to destroy that turd down to a level. You're treated by this government agency like pests, to be rounded up and driven off the lands of their birth. The sun was just coming up in Carbon County, Utah. BLM was conducting a wild horse gather in a place that's pretty remote outside of a little town called Sunnyside. When I arrived, there were only about seven of us bundled up behind binoculars and cameras, and I had my audio equipment. I had barely made it in time. I could already hear the helicopter overhead. The appropriate management level or number of horses the land could sustain, according to the BLM, for this area is between 75 and 125. The population was 282. With the upcoming spring foals, the number was supposed to jump to over 300 horses. At the end of the corridor was a horse being held by a man. This horse is appropriately named the Judas Horse. As the helicopter herds the Mustangs toward the corridor, the Judas horse is released. The Judas horse is trained to run in front of the Mustangs to lead them into the corral. The way that I look at it is, imagine there's a big group of us people and suddenly there's a fire. We're all confused and we're trying to figure out which way to go and we're panicked and this one guy says, follow me. And he starts running and we start running with him and then we run into fire. But that's not a really fair comparison because these horses aren't running into fire. They're just running into a corral. But some would argue that they're running to their imminent death anyway. All that and more on this episode of Wildish. 
One of the reasons I went to Utah was to speak to Gus War. He and I had been corresponding back and forth for months. Gus speaks to the public a lot. He's the state wild horse and burrow program manager for BLM Utah. And how long have you been doing that? So I've been doing this now, this year, this spring was 30 years uh, as far as in the wild horse and burrow program. I've actually been in the Utah State Office, BLM Utah State Office, um, for, wow, let's see, for about 20 of that. Uh, so it's been, it's been quite a career. And you were talking about how you don't take it home with you. Yeah, people have asked me, how have you survived 30 years in this program? Because a lot of people, they go three or four years and they just can't handle it because it is, is so emotionally. I mean, we get people that call us up and they have some colorfully non-flattering things they say. Some of them are flat out threats. I mean, yeah. uh, over the last, this last couple of gathers we've had, I've had to turn over about six different emails and phone calls to law enforcement because they were perceived as threats. Some of them are nasty threats. I mean, uh, one person called up, like, uh, for example, one person called up our contractor and left a message saying, stop these gathers immediately. If not, your family members are going to get hurt. Your machinery is going to get hurt. And if you don't stop, we're going to string you up and bleed you out. That nice. was word for word what they said on the phone. And we, all we can do is just turn that over to law enforcement and say, here's another one. Uh, and so, yes, it is very emotional, very passionate. And I tell people, you can't take it home with you. Yeah. It is a job. It's a job that I love, but it's a job that you have to do and then check out and go home and love on your family. I, I, it, I never used to be that way. It used to get me just so angry with people until I realized, okay, they're just passionate. They're just venting emotion. You wish that they had a different perspective, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. What strikes me about Gus is he's really optimistic. He doesn't have that defeated tone in his voice like most of the BLM people I've talked to. But as accommodating and generous as Gus was, I still felt really uncomfortable watching these horses being gathered. I think I would have felt the same way if it were any other animal. A gang of elk or a deer herd. It's not fun to watch other animals be scared. They're not, most of them are not mean or threatening. They're, a, they're an animal that has come off the, the deserts and the mountains like these, the mountains for sure, and they're just scared to death. They've never been put in this situation before. And, and, I, and I do hear this quite a bit, this idea of why don't we just let predators take care of the problem of the excess population? Why don't we let mountain lions and wolves? And, and in reality, you know, if we were back in time and we didn't have the, popula the human population base we have now, you could probably do that. But our herd management areas, even though some of them are so remote, that's not going to be acceptable to not only locals, but, you know, wildlife are managed by state agencies. BLM doesn't manage wildlife. And so for one thing, we have to partner up with our state agencies. If they want to increase the number of predators, then we would work with them. But when you start increasing predators and they start, uh, you know, killing animals that are non-target species like livestock, pets, stuff like that, you're going to have an uproar that's a whole lot different than what you see about the uproar of protecting wild horses and burrows. And you're going to see humans coming out, in my opinion, in, in droves saying, oh no, we're not going to have no mountain lion sneaking up on my grandson or my kids. You know, I just don't see that as, as an option. And it's primarily because we've put these horses and burrows 
as humans in these little boxes. We've put them in these what we call herd management areas and we say you need to be managed here. So they're different than wildlife, they're different than livestock. Wild horses and burros aren't the only ones out on these public lands. Cattle ranchers are allowed to graze their cattle on BLM lands, typically during certain times of the year. Some people argue if you take the cows off the land, the wild horses and burros wouldn't be an issue. There's even a difference in the way cows and horses eat. The cattle industry is huge in the United States. And that's the real problem, according to the American Wild Horse Campaign. The ratio is something like 50 cows to one wild horse. So I asked Gus if that was a fair argument. I've had domestic horses, I've had cattle, and I do have cattle, and I can tell you how they can graze a pasture, but I can take you to both the horse pasture and the cow pasture that is as heavily grazed as either one of them. I mean, if you leave them in there long enough, they're both going to graze it right down to their roots. I mean, I, yeah, I, I, I just don't buy that because, yeah, cows do different. They wrap their tongue around the forage and they pull it off. But when it gets that low, they can actually get down there with their gums and nipple away. Horses, same thing. They can get down with their incisors and nip it right down to the crown. But it really depends on the sheer number of animals and how long they're spending in, in an area. I always ask people when they say, well, horses don't graze it that long. I'm like, have you ever driven around some rural town and looked at horses in a pasture? And if you leave them in there long enough, it's going to be dirt. There's nothing there. I mean, horses and cows can be very destructive on the environment if they're not managed. But what we call the appropriate management level on what number we're trying to manage for is more tied to water than it is forage. I've seen congressmen that are, that are bound and determined, or senators or whatever, that are bound and determined to make a difference. And they go out and they show a bunch of pictures of starving horses. And they say, this is happening. We need to change this right now because this is happening. And those pictures are true, but the, the fallacy that comes in is they try to say this is happening everywhere. And it's really not happening everywhere, but there are a lot of areas where I could take you to an area today and show you an area where the area is overpopulated, it's heavily overgrazed, has limited water and forage, and we may have some horses that are thin and potentially compromised. But, you know, it's not broad spectrum and really mother nature really kind of dictates where and when that happens. Um, you could go into many places in Nevada right now and you could see some really skinny horses that are not doing very good because they're so overpopulated and we need to take action now. But I could take you to another area that the horses are so fleshy and obese that it's like, oh my gosh, you got more food and water than you can imagine. In Utah, for example, this year, because we had a good winter and we had a good spring, we have areas that are typically overgrazed and overpopulated. The numbers are still there, but the horses look great because we had good moisture, we had good grass growth, so the horses look great. And so, you know, you look at that and say, oh, don't, don't worry about that herd this year, they're fine. But next year, we might be hauling water to that same herd. If we get into a drought situation, we might be hauling water to that same herd because we didn't get the grass that grew or we didn't have the spring recharge for the moisture to help sustain them for a, you know the long period of time that they need that resource. Feast or famine? Feast or famine. The BLM is kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. Right? Sure, so they are. What, they are. I, what I mean by that is you have wild horse advocates who 
but to, some, to put it bluntly, just absolutely hate the BLM. Oh yes, hundred percent. And that, then you have, then you have ranchers, cattlemen that absolutely hate, hate the, the BLM. BLM. Yes, you, so, you, I was going to say. I hope you throw that in there because yes. there is, and you have wildlife organizations that hate the BLM right. because horses are devastating wildlife habitat. There are what I call horse activists, and there's horse advocates. Okay. There are some, and the difference that the activists in my opinion, are, are people that have such a passion about horses that they're gonna do everything to say horses or nothing. And they, they don't, they're not willing to compromise or see the other side, right. but a horse advocate, which there are many, they, are, they, they understand, yeah, they need to be managed. You know, we wanna see horses out here, but we understand the position BLM's in and, and they need to do that. So there are some really great horse advocates out there. There are some livestock operators that are the same way. There are some that they want no wild horses, no wild burrows, but there's others. You know what? We don't mind if there's horses and burrows out there as long as they're managed appropriately to a, an appropriate number. Same with the wildlife folks. You know, and, and I see extremes on every side, but what people don't realize is there's a lot of those that fit in that category, but they're not the extremists and they're very workable and, and it works great. You know, you see federal government and there's people that are like, oh my gosh, that's the feds. They're not telling the truth. You can't go onto their website and believe anything, but honestly, try to put yourselves in our shoes as federal employees. We're trying to uphold laws. And even if we wanted to change those laws, we can't, even though we wanted to do something different or we didn't agree with it, it's something we can't do. So I, my, my advice to people is, is be understanding have patience and be willing to educate yourself and get the facts. And don't just listen to one side that meets what you want to hear. Get, get all the facts. You can go on the internet and find anything that meets your world. Is it the truth? Is it what's actually going on? That can be said for a lot of different things that we have going on all over the world. I also spoke with Lisa Reed of the BLM as the gathered Mustangs stumbled out of the trailer into the temporary holding area. In my position as a public affairs specialist for the state of Utah, um, I come in contact, I'm that first person that comes in contact with the public. Whether it's happy or sad or, you know, there's so many components to my job that deals with human nature that I have to, you know, I have to learn and be able to um, to work with. However, it, it takes a toll on you um, when you constantly see bad media, bad, I mean, we have public constantly wanting to kill us or hope our kids die or wishing bad things upon us. And it wears on you after a while. I have to rem remind myself that I'm here to do a good thing, to be a part of a, a great result. And that is to find these horses home because I don't know what the future holds for them. Nobody would ever take the abuse that we take if we didn't have a love for the horses. I asked both Gus and Lisa what they think the future holds for the Wild Horse and Burrow program. Back in the 90s, even the early 2000s, you could almost project where the, where the program's going based on politics or budget or, you know, uh, economy but honestly I don't see where it's going because we have so many challenges in front of us we have you know the challenge of okay we have over 50,000 animals in holding what what's going to be the, the, the cutoff point and what do we do with those horses do we continue to just allow them to graze and and, and live out these their lives in these pastures I'm fine with that as long as the budget is passed and that's what the, the, the public wants. 
I get people all the time that cuss me out because they feel their public public dollars are not being spent appropriately. And I, I have to tell them, well, that's not my decision. I'm just, you know, I'm fulfilling what the legislative branch has told us to do. You know, are we should we be selling these excess horses for some protein base? I get people call us up and say all the time, you could be feeding a lot of starving so-and-so people. And I'm like, yes, you could. But right now, the American people has not accepted that as an option. And I, I'm, I'm fine with that. I, uh, you know, whatever, whatever, you know, the public feels, I, I gladly withhold that. So I don't know where it's going to go. But if we continue the way we're going, we're going to have to have more money, more holding pastures, more corrals. All of that has to be expedited in, in a big way to deal with the situation we have on the ranges right now because we are so overpopulated. Okay. Wild horses are never going to be extinct. I see my grandkids and my great-grandkids seeing wild horses and burrows on public lands. It's just a fact. They're going to be there. In what fashion are we going to see stabilized herds that are non-reproducing or are we going to see uh, animals that are coming in and going out to different countries? I don't know, but I'm convinced that we're going to see uh, wild horses and burros on public lands for perpetuity. It's it's just going to happen. I don't see any way around that and I'm, I'm happy to see that. You know, I don't know that I'll ever see it in my career um, as much as I would like to think that I've, I've had a small part of the program's success, but you know, I'd like for our program to be in a position to where we can have wild herds, sustainable herds on the range without so much human interaction to where we can still be able to remove just small numbers of horses and offer them for adoption, but yet not have to go in and remove continuously or continuously do birth control because every time we touch them, we impact them. They, we take them from that wild state. On the table was a plan put together by many unlikely groups called the Path Forward. The plan acknowledges, as of 2019, the Wild Horse and Burrow program is at its tipping point. Gus described it in our interview. Groups have come forward with a plan. It's not BLM's plan. It, groups have come forward and said, we need change. And that's what we're looking at is potentially a $35 million increase to change and start doing things a little bit different, which means we need to start doing more gathers. We need to start doing more fertility control, which is population growth suppression to try to reduce the number of babies being born. We need to try to increase our adoptions. And it's put together by a, a large number of organizations, everybody including the Humane Society of the United States. Um, it's called the uh, Return to Freedom, which is a horse advocate organization out of California. Uh, Ameri ASPCA, which is the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, they've all joined with Farm Bureau, National Cattlemen's Association, multiple state organizations, and it's like, wow, when do these guys ever sit down at the table together and agree on anything? Okay. And they have actually come together with this path forward, they call it, to say BLM needs help in managing this program, and that's what we're looking at right now. You know, so there's a lot of horse activists out there that are just so upset over this action. Yeah. They're saying things like horses are going to go extinct and this is, horses are going to go to slaughter and blah, blah, blah. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And you've got a polarized horse community that are now fighting amongst themselves, which we never used to see that. We're kind of standing back going, wow, okay. The first I'd heard about this plan was when I visited Ginger Catherine's of the Cloud Foundation. You may remember her speaking in our first episode. 
She was a pioneer for women early in her filmmaking career with her PBS documentaries on Cloud the Wild Stallion. The Cloud Foundation has been one of the loudest voices in horse advocacy or activism, depending on what you think, based on Gus's definition. I serve as the humane advocate on the BLM National Wild Horse and Brew Advisory Board, but that board is loaded with people who are good people, but they don't see this issue the way I do. And I don't think they see it the way the vast majority of American citizens do. We're facing slaughter of wild horses in holding. Some of our misguided friends are supporting big roundups and and using and using a fertility, which is a good thing. In the meantime, thousands and thousands and thousands more horses will be vulnerable in corrals. So easy, so quickly for Congress to allow for slaughter. And this is a big concern. The law protects wild horses and burrows from slaughter in the United States, but it still happens. Horses and burrows who are 10 years old or older, and ones that have been put up for adoption at least three times, can be sold. The animals become the buyer's property immediately. Then, sometimes, horses and burrows are taken across the border to Canada or Mexico, where processing horses in those countries is legal. And it used to be legal in the United States. People all over the world eat horse meat, believe it or not. The answers seem different for everyone in this subject. And the new legislation is amping everything up. The most controversial part of the Path Forward plan is it opens the door for the BLM to capture and spay mares. It's less expensive than the BLM having to pay for the PZP vaccine in the long run. Ginger Catherines describes it as this. A plan to rip the ovaries out of mares and return them to the range. This is not practical. It definitely is barbaric and inhumane. So it's, it's really hard to wrap your mind around people who obviously don't empathize with wildlife. They do not feel the pain. They, they just don't have the empathy gene, and there's nothing we can do about it. We only have to hope that we have enough good people in Congress who can see through this and can opt for humane alternatives. And that's what we advocate for. And I hope we'll be successful, but I don't know. It's This is not the greatest time to be advocating for wildness. The plan passed. I was curious about the procedure the BLM is considering for spaying mares. So I watched a video that they put out on YouTube. And even with the elevator music in the background, it wasn't great to see. So I keep changing my mind. I don't know what the right answer is. As the trailer of gathered Mustangs drove away from Carbon County, Utah, I was only sure of one thing. Humans have an art of getting into impossible problems. Next time, getting booked behind bars and big tattoos. And I don't just mean in the animal world. At first I could tell you, well, I've never, I've never been like yeah. on prison grounds before, yeah. so I wasn't sure what to expect. But um, everything's not like it is on TV. Yeah. No, yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. not like Shawshank Redemption. Or <laughs> With the cutest little dudes, everyone always forgets about. <laughs> That's next time on Wildish.
All the music in Wildish was written and performed by me. Thank you to everyone who participated in this episode, and a big thank you to Gus for sending that BLM officer back to me to lead me up the scariest road I've ever driven. Please rate Wildish wherever you get your podcasts.